Disclaimer, today's episode was almost entirely compiled using witness testimony and court documents. All parties referenced are innocent until proven guilty. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. And so now you have a man who has a wife and a daughter and and grandchildren. And he, he can't even help walk in the grass as a free man. And he's he's in his sixties, he's aging. There's not much time there's less life ahead of him than his behind him at this point. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. How are we feeling today, guys? I'm feeling great. I'm, I'm feeling as <laughs> a good big as pause. Be. A big pause. <laughs> well, Billy opened his mouth like he was going to talk, so I didn't want to interrupt. And then he just sat there and didn't say anything. So he was stunned by our beauty, I think. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Billy's clearly feeling great. <laughs> Billy's feeling great. I am feeling like shit. But Alexis and I went to a wedding this weekend, last weekend, and I'm still feeling the uh, effects of drinking for three days straight. Yeah, I'm not feeling like myself, but I'm definitely feeling better than I was yesterday. Yes, yes, yes. Well, what day is it today, Billy? Well, today is February 23rd, and it's Inconvenience Yourself Day. Oh, what what is the reasoning behind this day? Does it have a description? It does. It says it's not merely about inconveniencing oneself, like, hey, I'm going to just walk around without my keys and phone for the whole day, which would give everybody a nightmare. Um, it's about being more attentive to others. Oh, okay. So they say, be there for others emotionally, show some kindness to strangers. This is one place that I did want to talk to you about. Shovel their driveway or mow their lawn. Let someone else have the last piece of pizza. Mm. Mm, that might be where it goes off the rails. So it's basically just do something nice for another day, but they they titled it something that feels like it could be in a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> yes. I think. No one gets the last slice of pizza while I'm around. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Billy, mm-hmm. it is also curling is cool day, and I it's been a dream of mine to play curling one day, and I still haven't made that happen in my life. All right. Well, I don't we'll think make you can play curling in Los Angeles. I know. I don't think that they have casual curling locations i will find one not here it's a it's adjacent to hockey so i should be able to find it yeah maybe we have to do a trip up to canada to do it <laughs> maybe they have roller curling mm, Ooh, that Bill, I you don't do. play ice hockey i have played ice hockey i do roller now but um i i know a lot of ice hockey players and i know everybody at the rink so all right well start asking for some curling games i will i will make my dreams come true all right well that is enough of that so let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, since 1989, there have been 2,946 exonerations in the United States. Exactly half of them have been for black defendants. More than 26,000 years have been lost due to wrongful convictions, the majority of which are for murder. The subject of today's case is a black man who says he's been convicted of a murder he did not commit. 
He's lost 35 years of his life due to a racist system that would rather cover up a white man's incompetence than admit a black man is innocent. The man we're discussing today is named Jeffrey Myro Burks, and he hopes to be number 2,947 on the National Registry of Exonerations. So we begin today's case on March 24th of 1984, and this is a year that many people consider to be the best ever for pop music. We have artists like Cyndi Lauper, Prince, Madonna, and Michael Jackson ruling the music charts. Footloose was the number one song on the radio and the number one movie in theaters. Splash and Against All Odds were the next biggest moneymakers. And the setting for today's case is Folsom State Prison in California. The prison opened in 1880 and is the state's second oldest prison behind San Quentin. It's the first prison to have electricity, and it's also the location of the famous Johnny Cash live show. In the 70s and 80s, California prisons were rife with gang violence between the Mexican mafia, black guerrilla family, and others. Folsom State Prison was a very dangerous and violent place to be in 1984. By March 24th, there had already been four murders at Folsom. One was just six days prior, when an inmate known to associate with the Mexican and Italian mafias was killed. Her first degree for today's case is named Jatoria. She works as an executive chef, and she's also the great-niece of Jeff Burks, the subject of today's case. Growing up, Jatoria only got the chance to meet her uncle one time. So I've only ever met my uncle once, and I was like seven. We drove to the prison that he was in, like, bordering Mexico somewhere, and that's the only time. Jatoria's family eventually explained to her the circumstances that landed her uncle in jail for life. At 19 years old, Jeff did a horrible thing and received a seven-years-to-life sentence for a crime. Here's a summary of the crime according to Jatoria. Him and his friends were hanging out, and one of them had a gun. And they'd go to the store, they'd get either more to drink or something to eat, and they'd come back, and then someone else would hold the gun each time they went back and forth. And so this time he was holding the gun, and it was a random dude. He bumps into him. He's like, Jatoria, to this day, I don't know why I did it. He's like, I don't know why I shot that man. He's like, I had no reason to shoot him. He didn't do anything to me. And so it was completely senseless and honestly wholeheartedly pointless, and a man lost his life for no reason. Jeff went to jail for the senseless crime he committed as a teen. And let's be clear here. He stole someone's life. He accepted his sentence. And behind bars, he served his time and stayed out of trouble. And just as he was about to be paroled, a twist of fate completely derailed those hopes. An altercation in the prison yard led to the death of a fellow inmate. Jeffrey had nothing to do with it, but he was convicted anyway, which ultimately turned into a life without parole sentence. Because Jeff had been behind bars for the entirety of Jatoria's life, she had never had the opportunity to grow close to her uncle. But then, in early 2020, that would all change for a now-adult Jatoria. She was laying in bed, scrolling through Instagram, when a scripture popped in her head. Gateway Hebrews 13. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And so being very spiritual, Jatoria saw this as a sign from God. Incredibly spiritual. So about a year ago, God is like, "You need to help your uncle with this case." And I'm like, "I am not a lawyer, nor do I have financial fiduciary money uh, to help my uncle with this case." But uh, sure, sure. However, however you see fit. Tutoria turned to Google to find as much info about Jeff's conviction as she could, and wanted to help in whatever way possible. She tried to get in touch with Jeff's wife Nanette to see how she could help, but Tutoria couldn't seem to get a hold of her. Fast forward to a year later, to April of 2021, Jatoria moved to New York City to work as an executive chef. 
She continued trying to get in touch with Nanette, but still had no luck. Within a few months of Dottoria's move, two life-changing things happened to her. These events would set off the chain of dominoes leading her to today's episode. At roughly the same time she lost her job for the first time in her life, and the matriarch of the family, her great-grandmother, Jeff's mom, passed away. Dottoria had always been very close to her great-grandmother. She was her entire world, and the reason why she became a chef. So this was a devastating loss. Jatoria went to her great-grandmother's funeral, and lo and behold, Jeff's wife, Nanette, was there. I told her, I'm like, oh, I really, I've actually been, been trying to get a hold of, like, Uncle Jeffrey, and he's in prison, so I'm only going to get information from him if he calls me, and I want to help with the case. I'm like, I don't exactly know how, but I'd, I'd really love to do whatever kind of help I can. And as luck would have it, Jeff called his wife, Nanette, at the wake as Jatoria was standing right next to her. And he calls at the wake. And so I actually get to speak with him. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, that'd be, that'd be great, loved one. He's so sweet. He's like, you know, it's like if you just like write a letter or something. I'm like, I think we can do more than write letters, but I'd love to talk to you about it. Like, here's my number. Then Jatori received another sign that she was meant to help her Uncle Jeff. She won a raffle for a consultation with a marketing agency. Jatoria met with two women from the agency, and she explained that she essentially wanted to build a business, a movement focused on getting her uncle out of prison. I say, I actually want to build a brand around getting my uncle out of prison, and the ladies go crazy, Haley and Kat, with the KB agency that reached out to you in the first place. They're super excited. Haley is crazy about true crimes, and Kat's just wild, so it works. They're like, yeah, this sounds great, and I'm like, well, let's, like, I'm like, I have this idea that we just, like, make TikToks essentially telling the story and building this, this conversation around it. That was August of 2021. And since then, Jatoria has grown so close to her uncle that they speak every day. And she's been working hard to spread the story of Jeff's wrongful conviction through TikTok, petitions, websites, and doing things like coming on the first degree. So what exactly is Jeff's story? How did he get convicted of a murder he didn't commit? And why is he still behind bars? So to answer those questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. Jeffrey Milo Burks was born and raised in Compton, Los Angeles, California. And there are some things that you need to know about Compton to give context to this part of our story. Following the Watts riots in 1965, crime in Compton rose sharply. Middle-class residents fled, and by 1969, it had the highest crime rate in the state of California, and poverty grew increasingly evident. Then, the rise of the Crips and blood gangs in the 70s, coupled with the drug trade and LAPD Chief Daryl Gates's paramilitary approach to handling crime, turned South LA and Compton into the epicenter of street violence. All this to say, it was not an easy place for a young Black child to grow up, and opportunities were extremely limited. Growing up, Jeffrey Milo Burks was the youngest of six children, with three brothers and two sisters. His mom divorced his dad when he was four years old, so she was a single mom raising six kids, which meant that Jeff's mom had to work a lot. This left Jeff to be supervised primarily by his older siblings, which equated to virtually no supervision. Jeff didn't see his father except for the rare weekend visit. By the time Jeff was 15 or 16, his relationship with his father was virtually non-existent. Jeff joined the Job Corps when he was 15, fudging his age to breach the must-be-16 requirements. His brother had seen success there, and he wanted that for himself. But Jeff was soon kicked out of the program. 
Not one to go without a job, he then worked for the Long Beach Naval Shipyard. By the time Jeff was a legal adult, he was living with his brother and trying to stay out of trouble. But then he fell in with the wrong crowd. He smoked weed, he drank, and he made bad choices. And as we told you at the top of this episode, when Jeff was drinking one day with his friends, he shot and killed an innocent man outside of a liquor store in 1974 when he was 19 years old. So a little more about the history of L.A. in the 1970s. It was a very tense time. Howard Bloom wrote an article for the L.A. Times that delves into the issues black youth were facing during this period. We're talking about school desegregation and school busing, which sparked protests and political movements, and racial tensions were extremely high. So nationally, in the 1970s, Nixon's war on drugs was declared, which ballooned the incarceration rate more than 600 percent between the mid-60s until the year 2000. And it's no secret that the war on drugs disproportionately impacts minority groups. So needless to say, the 1970s was a dangerous place to grow up, especially in Compton. And I share this information here because while Jeffrey Milo Burks did murder someone when he was 19, and while that is awful and tragic and really, truly sad, there are variables here that put him at particularly high risk of falling into criminal activity as a kid, which is exactly what happened. And we need to factor these variables into what happened in this case overall. So Jeffrey was arrested, convicted, and sentenced for this murder. And soon after Jeff started serving a sentence, he reconnected with an old friend, a woman named Nanette, who he knew before his conviction. And it wasn't long before they became an item. In 1977, even though Jeff was a prisoner, they married and are still together today, 45 years later. In 1982, after serving the minimum of his seven years to life sentence, Jeff was transferred to Folsom State Prison. In the same year, he went up for parole and was denied parole for at least a year. When that year was up, according to Jeff, he applied again and was granted a tentative release date for 1987. For the next four years, he'd be transferred to a different prison to undergo an 11-month psych evaluation and serve out the rest of his time. On March 17, 1984, Jeff was relocated from the third tier of Folsom to the first tier. Next, he was supposed to be transferred to another prison. While waiting for that transfer, the series of events of today's case unfolded. The week that this foolishness goes on, he's supposed to be getting transferred to another prison and like finishing out his time, getting the psyche eval or whatever, making sure that he's good for parole. And so when all this goes down, it doesn't make any sense that he would do it. He was getting out. He's like, I'm not, in get- I'm not involved in any games and I'm on my way to my wife. On March 24th, a week after his relocation to the first tier, everything about 28-year-old Jeff's life changed. At around 8.20 a.m. that morning, Jeff and 20-plus other inmates went out to the 4A security housing unit yard, which is known as the Black Yard. It was only Jeff's second time in the yard since his transfer here. He started playing a game of four-on-four basketball on the west side of the yard. 31-year-old inmate Mitchell Celestine was keeping score. According to Jeff, three hours later at around 11.30 in the morning, he was still playing basketball when all of a sudden a few players stopped in their tracks and stared off into the east. A fight had broken out near the exercise bar on the south side of the yard, just under the guard tower. An inmate named Warren Jordan was fighting with another inmate named Edward Brooks. They were making their way towards the heavy bag, which was on the opposite side of the yard from the basketball court. The fight escalated at the heavy bag. Other inmates joined in, some to protect Edward, others to help Warren. And one of those people who jumped in was a guy named Ricky Bonville. He'd been standing by to act as backup for Warren. 
When Edward wasn't looking, Ricky dropped a makeshift knife he was holding, punched Edward in the head, and knocked him out. When Warren pushed Edward into the heavy bag and stabbed him twice more, Edward fell to the ground and Ricky and Warren took off to dispose of their evidence. By the time Jeff turned to follow his fellow basketball players' gazes, he saw Edward lying on the ground near the heavy bag. Then Jeff saw Warren coming toward him from the bag area with a knife. Jeff looked up at the gun tower to see if the officer on duty had noticed or saw anything. He saw corrections officer Dennis Stafford on the phone, looking toward the upper yard. And apparently while he was on the phone, he was pointing towards his bicep. I know that sounds weird, but we're going to elaborate on this later. So Jeff backed up against the west wall. He didn't want to be anywhere near Warren and his knife. Other inmates, including scorekeeper Mitchell, followed suit. Around this moment, Officer Stafford finally noticed what was going on in the yard. He hung up the phone, exited the tower, and fired off a warning shot. Then he went back into the tower to answer the phone again. His supervisor, Sergeant Jimmy Walker, was calling to see what the hell was going on. So almost everyone in the yard immediately froze in place. This is what happens when people fire a warning shot in prison yards. But Ricky and Warren kept moving. They were trying to get rid of the knives they just used to fatally stab Edward. Ricky Bonneville keeps walking after the first warning shot where you're supposed to freeze on the yard and drop, right? He keeps walking because he needs to throw his knife over the fence because when he gets caught with his knife, Jordan is going over to buy the showers to take off the sweater and put his shirt back on because he's covered in blood. He's wearing this light blue sweater. He takes it off, throws it in the sink, wipes his hands a little bit, keeps on. According to witness testimony, when Officer Stafford left the tower again, he noticed that Ricky and Warren were moving. So he fired a second shot and it worked. Every inmate froze in place. Officers entered the yard and took Edward Brooks out on a gurney. He was left unconscious and would soon die from the numerous stab wounds, including three to the left side of his back, five to his chest and one to the back. Then officers escorted the remaining inmates out of the yard in a specific order. Suspects were to leave next. Two inmates were called off first because they were both near Edward's body when Officer Stafford realized what was going on. The officers didn't know yet, but these two received minor injuries while trying to save Edward. Warren and Ricky were called off next because they had refused to stop moving after Stafford fired a shot and told them to get down. Everyone called off the yard was strip searched. And on Warren and Ricky, officers found cuts on their hands and blood in their bodies and on their clothes. All this was documented and DNA swabs were taken. Once all the suspects were gone, the rest of the yard was allowed to leave. The inmates were called off in the order they were let into the yard. Mitchell was the 13th person released. Jeff was the 17th. Both men were searched, and neither had any injuries, blood, or weapons on them. So they were sent back to their cells. With all the inmates out of the yard, officers searched it from top to bottom. On the other side of a fence, they found Ricky's knife, which appeared to be made out of some sort of metal from his cell. And in the toilet area, officers found Warren's sweatshirt, knife, and shoes. The evidence was collected and sent off for DNA testing. Then, according to Officer Michael Vollmer, all the staff went to the same conference room to write up their reports. Hours later, the officers were done writing their reports and were going all about their business as usual. At around 3.30 that day, it was time for a head count. Sergeant Walker took the opportunity to pull Jeff aside and talk to him. Jimmy Walker walks up 
to his cell during a count and says, I need to talk to you. Well, my uncle's not a fool. He's like, it was just a murder in the air. I'm not going to talk to any of these cops. I don't know anything as far as I'm concerned. And he's like, well, you know, Stafford says that he saw you kill Brooks. And he's like, well, that's, that's a damn lie. And Walker's like, no, I know. I know. I've seen that you didn't do it. I've seen you through the window playing basketball at the time, right? So you sit on the ball. And he's like, well, if you know this, then you have to do something. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, I'm going to write a 128, which is essentially a report saying what actually happened or what he actually saw. And then you call me to your 115 hearing, which is an internal hearing in a prison to see if something actually gets picked up by the DA to prosecute kind of thing. Okay. To be clear, Officer Stafford allegedly started saying that Jeff was responsible for killing Brooks. And what Sergeant Walker said to Jeff was that he knew Jeff didn't do it. Walker then admits that he saw Jeff playing basketball when the killing happened and told Jeff he'd write a report recounting the true events as they unfolded. Everything should be cleared up, right? Maybe in a perfect world. But prison is far from that. So based on the alleged conversation Jeff had with Sergeant Walker, who said he knew Jeff wasn't involved, he figured the charges would be cleared up quickly, and none of this would affect his pending transfer for his upcoming parole and eventual release from prison. And the only witness Jeff requested for his hearing was Officer Walker, who should clear this all up. But unfortunately for Jeff, he had no idea that Walker was not really a man of his word, allegedly. Within a few days of Edward Brooks's murder, the hearing was held to determine whether murder charges would be filed against Jeff. To start off, Officer Stafford's report was read into the record. Stafford said he was out on the gun rail when he heard a yell coming from the black yard, so he turned to see what was going on. That's when he saw two inmates over by the heavy bag. And he said they were making overhand striking motions toward Edward. The inmates were Jeff Burks and Mitchell Celestine. Besides having named the wrong killers, Stafford's statement of seeing Jeff and Mitchell going at Edward with overhand motions was physically impossible because the pathologist had found that Edward's injuries were caused by a knife going straight into his body. There was no left-to-right or up-to-down angle to the wounds. Imagine the movie Scream where you see somebody getting stabbed, right? Then stabbed from coming over your head and stabbing down on somebody. But that report doesn't line up with the way this man is actually stabbed. So if I'm stabbing you from the hip, right, and going straight into your stomach versus coming over and stabbing you in the shoulder from bringing the knife down from a high angle, right, they'd be two completely different wounds. The entries would look different. The cut would be different. So following Stafford's report being entered into the record, Jeff called Sergeant Walker to tell the board that Stafford had identified the wrong guys and that Jeff had been playing basketball when Stafford's first warning shot rang out. Walker then apparently gave his account, the account Jeff expected that would clear this whole misunderstanding up. He says, you know, CO Walker, can you please tell the, the, the judge essentially what you told me? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, what you told me in my cell. He's like, I never talked to you. What are you talking about? So you have to imagine what this moment felt like for Jeff. There was finally light at the end of the tunnel. He was going to be paroled soon. And now he was being accused of something he says he didn't do. And Officer Walker had allegedly betrayed him 
and was allegedly lying about what really happened. Stafford said that he didn't see anything at all. And because of the sergeant's testimony, Jeff's hearing ended with the board referring that the DA filed charges against both Jeff Burks and Mitchell Celestine, who was playing basketball with Jeff when this all went down. And later on, according to Jeff, Officer Walker had the audacity to approach and speak with him. Walker comes up and he's like, I'm sorry, I couldn't do that for you. And he's like, why not? You told me that you would. And he says, when I wrote it up, my, like the officer over me, ripped it up in front of me and said, you can't pick that inmate over this other CO. Like, that's, that's not going down. He had to side with the CO. And he said, if you, um, if you play, you got to pay. And my uncle kind of didn't understand at the time, but essentially, like, if now, he's like, if you're in prison, this is, this is the game. This is the game that you play. Okay, let's pause for a second here and talk about what the hell just happened between the time of the stabbing and when Jeff's hearing was held. There were two obvious suspects for the murder of Edward Brooks, Ricky Bonville and Warren Jordan. They were the third and fourth people called off the yard because they hadn't stopped moving after Stafford fired a warning shot. Instead, they disposed of the evidence, and after they were called off the yard, officers documented finding cuts and blood on them. Meanwhile, Jeff and Mitchell didn't have any injuries or blood on them and were called off the yard last because they weren't suspects. Why would Stafford and Walker allegedly lie to pin Edwards' murder on Jeff and Mitchell when Ricky and Warren were so obviously guilty? And why would they choose Jeff and Mitchell out of all of the inmates in the yard to blame Edwards' murder on? Well, according to Jeff... Getting named as a suspect allegedly all starts with the fact that Officer Stafford was kind of bad at his job. So according to Sergeant Walker, Stafford hadn't really worked in the tower before. He was filling in for the normal guy who had called in sick that day. And according to numerous witnesses, Stafford was on the phone when this fight broke out, like we said. Because the witness saw Stafford pointing at his bicep while he was on the phone, they assumed he was talking about arm wrestling, of all things. And I know that sounds crazy, but Jatoria is going to clear that up for us. So he would wrestle, arm wrestle other COs. He would arm wrestle inmates. He was the guy, right? And so he was very, very self-absorbed in that persona. So at the time of this murder, several inmates say that they saw him making arm wrestling gestures looking in the opposite direction. If we are to believe the eyewitnesses, this means that Stafford didn't see a damn thing. He had no clue what happened to Edward Brooks, which was obvious considering his story was impossible per the pathology report. But here's the thing. Prior to the 115 hearing, Stafford even told a correctional officer investigator that he had seen them playing basketball during the fight. And there's more evidence to prove Stafford didn't see the attack. He believed that Edward was wearing a blue jean jacket buttoned all the way to the top when he was attacked. The jacket stuck out to Stafford because it was kind of odd. They were in the exercise yard and it was nice out that day. So it's not exactly the place and time to be wearing a buttoned up jean jacket. Stafford was adamant that Edward was wearing this jean jacket. But according to court documents, the jean jacket was never found in the yard or in the bag of clothing taken off his body. And while this may seem like a super small detail, it's actually a really big deal. He's like, I remember it so clearly. And he's never changed this little facet of information, though his story has changed many times, about this jacket being zipped all the way up to his neck. But there was no jacket at the scene because bro wasn't wearing a jacket. He was doing chin-ups when he started getting stabbed. He, w- he was wearing nothing but a black beater. Like, that's all he had on. And they never find it. And the fact that this piece of evidence 
for the man that you quote unquote saw getting stabbed but you didn't see shit is never found. It's flabbergasting. At some point, Stafford must have realized that if his superiors found out he didn't see a fight involving several inmates happening right in front of him, that he would face disciplinary action. He most likely knew he was screwed and had to come up with a story where he named some suspects. That way, it looked like he saw the fight and wasn't on the phone talking about arm wrestling while an inmate was brutally murdered. This is where things get complicated if they weren't complicated enough already. It's unclear how Stafford came to decide he'd seen Jeff and Mitchell do this, especially after he told the investigator that he'd seen them playing basketball during the attack and after Ricky and Warren had been identified as suspects. However, until someone comes clean, we may never know what happened. And like we said earlier, everyone's innocent until proven guilty. All we know is that it appears that he was lying when he made his report and continued lying afterwards. And of course, this is not where the conspiracy ends. There's another person involved in wrongfully convicting Jeff, and that's Sergeant Jimmy Walker, the guy who allegedly saw what happened and could have cleared Jeff. Jatoria has a theory on why Walker was involved in the conspiracy. There's this whole other side of the story of the corruption of the prison system itself and Walker creating this system. It's called a clean house policy. And so he makes it so that Gang members can kill whoever they want, but it can't be race-driven. So if you're Black, you can kill as many Black guys as you want. Just don't touch the white guys and don't touch the staff. And you're fine. We'll turn the other eye. And that was in the race war that was going on. But stabbings and murders skyrocketed. So shaking deeper. Bonneville was key and consequential in that whole thing that Walker had going on with regard to the clean house policy and and, and being in gangs and, and controlling rival gangs. Warren has said that he killed Edward for personal reasons, and Ricky has said that he was just there for backup. But according to Jatoria, Walker couldn't lose an inside man like Ricky, so he had to do something to protect him. It's possible Walker's alleged cover-up began almost immediately after Ricky was pulled off the yard. According to Ricky, while injuries and blood on him were being documented, a staff member showed up, and Ricky couldn't recall his name, but he told the officer that he was going to take over. Instead of finishing up the documentation process, the staff member gave Ricky a towel, which he used to wipe off the blood on his hands, his legs, his shorts, and then washed in the shower. According to Jeff, that staff member was Sergeant Walker. And when Walker found 44 inches of metal missing from Ricky's cell on March 26, documents show that he waited until April 10th to write a report to his supervisor. The metal wasn't sent to the lab until August, and the knives had been there since March 29th. The only issue with the alleged cover-up was that Ricky and Warren were not happy with how Jeff and Mitchell were being wrongfully accused of murder. And they both decided to say something about it. The day after the murder, Ricky told Stafford that he was the one that stabbed Edward, not Jeff or Mitchell. According to Ricky, this is how that conversation went. Stafford asked, you were involved in the Edward murder, right? And then Ricky replied, you have the wrong guys. Off the record about yesterday, you had everything down pretty much to a T, but I'm the one that stabbed Brooks. Why do you think I kept moving after you fired the shot? If that's the truth, and Jeff really had a weapon in his hand, then you better come forth with a confession. I'm not copying no murder beef. Then my report stands. Stafford waited over a month before he reported his conversation with Ricky, which led to Ricky being charged with Edward's murder. But the charges against Jeff and Mitchell remained. 
Soon after Warren Jordan decided to confess to Walker that he was the one who fatally stabbed Edward, Walker ended up telling a lieutenant about Warren's confession, and two days later, he was recorded telling his story to the DA's investigator. This was a confession the DA could not ignore, considering how the pathology report corroborated Warren's story. It would be a huge scandal if anyone found out that they didn't at least prosecute the confessor. Okay, so now we know what led to Jeff being wrongfully accused. But we don't know why. Why Jeff of all people? Well, Tutoria has a theory. He was considered disposable because he wasn't in any gangs. And so it wouldn't have been like a gang backlash. And he was new to that yard. He had only been on the yard a couple times at that point. And so he's a new blood. He's dis- he's dispensable. And Stafford hadn't done this job before. So he hadn't actually seen or spent a lot of time with my uncle at all. So he had no real connections there and he could just throw him away. In the fall of 1986, jury selection began for the trial of Jeff Burks, Mitchell Celestine, Warren Jordan, and Ricky Bonville. They had all been charged with murder. By the time selection was over, the jury was predominantly white, nine out of 12, while all four defendants were black. In addition, the prosecutors, defense attorneys, and judge were all white, as were both Stafford and Walker. The trial would end up lasting around a year. With four defendants, it would have already been lengthy, but there were also at least 20 inmates and numerous officers in the yard that day. They were all witnesses that needed to be brought in and brought to the stand. The prosecution told the jury that Edward Brooks was killed because he was, quote, caught between warring factions and the Black Gorilla family, or BGF for short. And although there was zero evidence to support the statement, the prosecution said Edward and all four defendants were either members or associates of the BGF. Out of their 62 witnesses, Stafford was the only one who quote-unquote witnessed the attack, so of course he was the prosecution's star witness. And he was telling whoppers. Stafford said that prior to the murder, he'd worked in that tower 35 to 40 times. But according to a supervisor, which was Walker, he only worked there once or twice prior to the stabbing. The rest of Stafford's testimony was completely different from things he'd said in the past. According to trial transcripts, Stafford admitted on the stand that prior to giving his testimony, he and the prosecution reviewed key eyewitness testimony so they could address the conflicts between Stafford's stories. Stafford said that at around 11 a.m. on the day in question, he was outside the gun tower on the gun rail overlooking the yard. He stayed out on the rail for a while, and at one point, he turned his head away and started walking east back towards the tower. He was a few feet from walking into the tower. He looked away from the yard for only one second, then heard high-pitched yelling coming from the black yard. He then said when he turned back, Edward was falling to the ground, and Jeff and Mitchell making overhand thrusting-type movements towards Edward. Edward fell under the heavy bag, and he said he saw multiple inmates around Edward, but only saw the faces of Jeff and Mitchell. Stafford filed the last warning shot, and then he received a call in the tower from Walker. He told Walker that Edward had been stabbed by Jeff and Mitchell. However, according to another corrections officer who was searching cells with Walker that day, Stafford didn't tell Walker who had stabbed Edward. He said, we were not told who the suspects were. If it was known who the suspects were, if they were still armed, we should have been told for the safety of the officers responding to the yard. Not to mention that if Jeff and Celestine were suspects, Jeff and Michelle Celestine, then they would have been pulled from the yard first, not towards the end. On cross, Stafford was asked if he was on the phone at the time of the attack. And of course, he says no. 
However, he did admit to being on the phone with another officer one to five minutes before the attack. This meant that he wasn't out on the gun rail for a long time prior to the attack, like he had just testified to. He could not keep his story straight on the stand at all. Also on cross, Stafford had to admit that he didn't see a knife in either Jeff or Mitchell's hands, and he never saw them make contact with Edward. He said there was no blood on Jeff or Mitchell or their clothes, and he never saw them discard any clothes or weapons or go near the sink area to wash off. And when asked why his testimony was different from anything he'd said in the past, Stafford pretty much said that everything he said previously was all a mistake or an error. Back to the trial, all of the defendants had different defense attorneys except Warren, who represented himself. Jeff and Mitchell testified that they were playing basketball. At least six witnesses corroborated their story, and they'd been playing four-on-four with them. Ricky testified that he didn't confess to anyone and that he wasn't involved at all. Since this testimony, Ricky has come clean and has signed a declaration admitting his involvement. Warren Jordan was never called as a witness, which meant he was never examined or cross-examined. However, his confession was played in court. Jordan gets up to give his last his last, you know, closing arguments to the jury. And some members of the jury actually start to cry. They're, they're, they're weeping from this very moving and compelling closing remark that he gave with regard to committing the murder. He's like, I did it, and this is why I did it. But even Warren's own admission wasn't enough to save Jeffrey Milo Burks from being convicted, too. Jeff's defense didn't hire a blood evidence specialist to bring up how Mitchell and Jeff didn't have any cuts or blood on them when they were taken off the yard. The two knives were tested— and several blood types have been found. However, there were no fingerprints. And according to lab results, no one ever tested Jeff or Mitchell's blood types to compare to the knives. So this is evidence that really could have helped their cases and possibly even cleared them. But no one cared to do it. Even though the lab submitted a request for Jeff and Mitchell's samples, no one ever followed through. Jeff's defense also didn't bring up how the knives and the metal missing from Ricky's cell were found to be the same in the preliminary examination. They never tried to take the testing any further. And according to Jeff, when he testified, his attorneys told him not to bring up his conversation with Walker about being innocent. It's all brutal to listen to. And there was also misconduct on both sides, the prosecution and the defense. And here are just a few examples, which we found in trial transcripts and newspaper articles. The prosecution asked the jury not to believe Warren's confession. They said, quote, promise me one thing. Do not dignify the circus by finding Mr. Jordan guilty of this murder. He's a violent fellow. He'll be back, I'm sure, on another one and we'll be ready and waiting for him. But do not play his silly game. He's trying to suck you in. The glue that binds these defendants together is the Black Gorilla family. Then the prosecution asked the jury to believe Stafford's testimony over Warren's, even though he was a quote-unquote bumbler and a crummy, lousy witness with all the human frailties that one could find. According to a summary of the trial transcripts, the defense told the jury that Officer Stafford was not a liar, but a poor correctional officer who didn't really care what was going on in the yard. The defense basically told the jury to believe the prosecution's star witness. After seven days of deliberations, the predominantly white jury made one of the most puzzling decisions we've heard of. They acquitted Warren and Ricky of murder, despite both of the men confessing to it, and found Mitchell and Jeff guilty of murdering Edward. And they were both sentenced to life without parole. It's really hard to understand, and, you know, we want to know how this happened and why this happened. 
this information is so shocking that the person that reads the the guilty verdict when she picks up the paper, she doesn't even read it. She's like, we, the jury, find him not guilty. We find Jeffrey Burks not guilty. And the the whole the whole place is, is, is cheering. And, and my uncle is hugging my aunt. And everyone is happy. And the judge is banging his gavel and saying, no, 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 Nancy, read it again. Actually, read it, read it again. And she drops the papers and actually starts crying. She's like, I'm so sorry. Uh, we, the jury, find you guilty of, of murder in the first degree and sentence you to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So it's just a lot. So Jeff, who was so close to being released, so close to being outside prison walls, after behaving in prison and doing his time, had his hopes completely dashed just like that. He would never again be free. The decision was soul-crushing. Following Jeff's conviction, Ricky Bonville wrote an affidavit where he detailed the truth of what happened to Edward Brooks. And even with this new admission, in addition to Warren's confession at trial and all the evidence pointing towards Jeff's innocence, the appeal attempts have been unsuccessful. Jatoria told us that Jeff's co-defendant Mitchell has invested no interest, effort, or funds in getting free from prison. He just thinks Jeffrey's going to get us out, so I'm not worried. Jeff has no choice but to start serving the time related to his new conviction. In 2000, there was a glimmer of hope for Jeff when the Innocence Project contacted him and said they wanted to help exonerate him. But within two years, Jeff's dreams of exoneration were crushed. The Innocence Project had found that DNA evidence proving Jeff's innocence was signed out of the DA investigator, and it was never returned. After contacting Folsom Prison, the Innocence Project found out that all the weapons— and all the evidence from the case had been destroyed. And without this crucial DNA evidence, the Innocence Project could no longer help Jeff. But there was someone who still could. Private investigator David Lynn, who was specialized in police misconduct, criminal defense, and human rights issues for over 25 years. In June of 2000, the private investigator interviewed Sergeant Walker, who said he and other officers watched the fight from a window during cell checks, but he never saw Jeff playing basketball. The P.I. reminded Walker that he'd testified that he hadn't seen the fight from a window. And Walker abruptly terminated the interview and stormed out of the room. Since his meeting with Walker, investigator David has spent a lot of time interviewing witnesses and people associated with Jeff's case. In December of 2019, David met with Stafford, and this is 19 years after Walker stormed out of the room under questioning. And at the beginning, Stafford said his testimony was accurate and he didn't have anything to change. But as P.I. David and Stafford spoke, Stafford added details that he hadn't testified to before. For example, he said that after firing the first shot, Walker called him to see what was going on. Stafford told Walker that he, quote, was 100% sure that Jeff, Mitchell, Warren, and Ricky were all stabbing Edward. The knives were flying. And Stafford had always claimed that before he never saw a knife at all, and now all of a sudden he saw knives flying. Plus, he'd never mentioned anything before about seeing Warren and Ricky stabbing at Edward. It's been over 20 years since David started working on Jeff's case, and he hasn't given up yet. He's still fighting for his innocent client. After Jeff's wrongful conviction, Dennis Stafford continued working as a corrections officer and later retired from the career. Walker was promoted to lieutenant, and by 1995, he was a captain at California State Prison, Sacramento, the newly opened state prison located right next to Folsom. He continued rising through the ranks, becoming associate warden in 2003. And in 2007, Governor Schwarzenegger appointed him the warden, 
which he served as until 2009. Today, Jeff is 66 years old. He's still in prison, and he's currently housed at the California State Prison in Corcoran. He was supposed to be released in 1987 after serving 12 years for a murder he committed as a teenager, a murder he's deeply remorseful for. But thanks to a racist and corrupt system, he's never given the chance to show the world that he was deserving of parole and deserving of a second chance, that he'd grown as a person and had learned from his past. For 35 years, more than half of his life, Jeff has been serving time for a crime he says he didn't commit, and the evidence seems to agree. During that time, he's taught himself to read and write, he's written a book, and he's taught others to read and write too. He's participated or started 30 programs centered on mentorships, counseling, at-risk youths, and drug diversion. And he's been elected to multiple prison advisory boards as well. He's organized sports programs, and the list goes on and on. There are men on the outside that will vouch for his character on the inside now. And so he's like, that's that's one of my like happiest achievements or whatever, that he made a difference in these young men's lives. Jeff's road to exoneration has been a long one. Since all of his appeals have been denied, the only way Jeff can be released from prison is if he's exonerated or if he receives a pardon or clemency. But Jeff refuses to participate in any type of clemency hearing because he would have to confess to a crime he didn't commit. He has said, I will never take any kind of deal based on a lie, even if it means a reduced sentence and my freedom. Saying I am guilty of this crime would go against everything I am. It would be a betrayal to my family, to all my friends and supporters who know I am innocent, and most of all, it would be a betrayal to myself. It's important for Jeff to be exonerated for the conviction he is not guilty of. And Tatoria isn't giving up hope that her uncle will be free one day. In fact, as a chef, our first-degree Jatoria can't help but wonder what Jeff will eat for his first meal as a free and exonerated man. I asked him what he wanted most when he got out. What he wanted to eat. I'm a chef. I'm like, what do you want to eat? He's like, I want deep-fried french fries. And I laughed because I'm like, Uncle, we just call those french fries. He's like, nah, back in my day, you could bake them. They're like, you can still bake them, but that's that's not what we do. He's like, no, they're deep-fried french fries. And he'll always call them deep-fried french fries. And it's so simple because I can just go and get french fries and everything. I can have the I-80 french fries you imagine in California. Everything but In-N-Out french fries I do. They're not great. And you can't do that. We asked Jatoria if she has any final words about this journey she embarked on towards her uncle's freedom. For 38 years off of some trumped up lies and some people have tried to bury it six, 15, 30 feet deep. My uncle just sat in prison for no reason. Yeah, he committed a crime to get in there, and he did his time for that crime, and then some. And by the same system that put him in, was going to be released from that same crime. And so now you have a man who has a wife and a daughter and and grandchildren, and he, he can't even help walk in the grass as a free man. And he's he's in his sixties. He's aging. There's not much time. There's less life ahead of him than is behind him at this point. And he's not a danger to anybody in society. I think it's important for justice not just to be served. There's there's a whole aspect of tearing down the system that kept you oppressed and putting every prick in prison that helped to put him in prison and keep him there. 
but there's just that human element of I want the man to have some fucking french fries, you know? And we want Jeff to have some fucking french fries as well. Justoria was inspired to help her uncle, and she was determined to turn her uncle's case for exoneration into a movement. To date, she's gotten the word out via a change.org petition, a website, and using TikTok. And now she's been on the first degree to share her story with you. And if you feel the same, please visit change.org to sign Jatoria's petition for Governor Newsom to commute Jeff's sentence. Those wrongfully convicted of murder spend an average of 14 years in prison before they exonerated. Jeff is on year 35. This is a miscarriage of justice, and it's time to set Jeff free. Well, huge thank you to Jatoria for being our first degree for this episode. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at thefirstdegree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group because we are talking true crime all the time. And come back tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But, but not that. What day is it? Happy Inconvenience Yourself Day. And Curling Day. Writing by Haley Gray. Producing by Caitlin Cleveland. Original scoring and editing by Jared Monaco. Sources for this episode are University of Michigan, Court Documents, San Francisco Examiner, Sacramento Bee, and as always, our first three guests is always our largest source.